Thank you for the download, the stream, the subscription, I hope, to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. And by now, you probably want to see it live. We've been doing this here podcast for almost three years. And to celebrate the three-year mark of Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast, we're going to be live in New York City at the Highline Ballroom Tuesday, October 24th at 8 p.m. with one of my favorite guests, Bully Ray himself, formerly known as Bubba Ray Dudley. He will be there with me. He's going to be doing an interview. He's going to be breaking down wrestling in the state of wrestling. He's going to be part of a Q&A. He's going to be part of the meet and greet. Get those VIP tickets if you want to experience the entire thing and get the best seats in the house. The only place to get tickets, highlineballroom.com. Look for the Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast banner or link there on the page uh, and enjoy the show. This is Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. All right? All right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Here he is. What a day. What a day. Welcome. Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast, and we got a hell, a hell of a podcast for you. A hell in a cell of a podcast for you. Lots to break down from Hell in a Cell. I saw a lot of you guys wanted me to do a bonus state of wrestling right after Hell in a Cell. I probably would have. I was so excited. I was in bed, and I was like, well, I can't get out of bed and just go downstairs and do a bonus podcast. You know, I got to go to sleep. But then I couldn't sleep. So I was super excited about the pay-per-view. So I probably should have just done a podcast. I will, by the way. You know, I'm building a studio that's like an audio and then also a video, an audio-visual studio so that I'll be able to go live and do stuff like that for you. Like, I would love to be doing pay-per-view post shows and stuff like that for you when I'm at home. I mean, why not? If I could just do it in my own studio? But the contractors, I'm building, it, 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 there's a floor to the studio, you know, and they're just taking forever, forever. I couldn't, I can't tell you how annoyed I am. They're taking forever to come and do the floor. I feel like if I just learned how to do flooring and then did it myself, it would be in less time. So maybe that's what I do. But either way, in the coming weeks, months, we're going to be doing a lot of fun stuff out of Not Sam Studios. But a lot to talk about today uh, from Hell in a Cell and also the aftermath of Hell in a Cell. We'll get into the Neville stuff. We'll get into war games coming back, everything. So much great feedback, and I appreciate all of it uh, from uh, last week's show with Brett the Hitman Hart, of course. Very opinionated. You got to respect the hitman for having his opinions. Uh, Controversial, too. Some people, uh, they thought I was kissing his ass. Some people thought I was respectful. Some people thought I was a jerk. Some people thought he was a jerk. Some people thought Eric Bischoff was a jerk. Some people, I don't know. Some people just enjoyed the interview. But I I, I like to be fair, okay? I don't know about the the president of the United States or these late-night show hosts, but I believe in equal time. So... I reached out to Eze himself. Uh, Eric Bischoff has a great podcast called uh, Bischoff on Wrestling. It's on the MLW Network, which you know does awesome as far as wrestling podcasts go. Um, but I reached out to the guys over at MLW, Court Bauer, and said, "Hey, man, I'd love to talk to Eric." I said, "This is uh, a lot of wrestling websites are picking up quotes from the interview that I did with Bret Hart, uh, where he talked about his thoughts on Eric Bischoff, and uh, I want to talk to the guy. I want to give him." an opportunity to uh, not just talk about Bret Hart, but just, you know, I felt like last week Bret came on and he gave all you guys his thoughts and opinions on on Eric. 
So I thought that the best thing that I could do was give Eric a chance to show you guys who he is. So that's who my guest is this week, the guy who was in charge of WCW during its hottest times, guy who uh, was uh, in WWE, a guy who was in TNA, a guy who wrote the book Controversy Creates Cash, and one of the most controversial figures uh, in the history of wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast, my guest is none other than the man himself, Eric Bischoff. And now, the Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast interview. Well, I thought it only right that this be the week that uh, for the first time, and we've tried to do this before, uh, but it hasn't panned out, and uh, I wanted to make sure that it panned out this week. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Eric Bischoff, what's the haps, man? Just enjoying another day in uh, the rodeo capital of the world, Cody, Wyoming. Well, that's what beautiful, I, that, that's what beautiful I was, fall day. Winter's not too far away, kind of around the corner, but uh, it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's 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 one of the things I was wondering about because, like a lot of people, I've seen the DVD that WWE put out, and it seemed like the spot that you were in, walking around in the mountains, your dog was following you. It wasn't on a leash; it was just like your buddy, and it, everything seemed perfect. You were there with your wife; it was all good, and. I kind of feel like you would let go of wrestling happily, but somehow podcasting has brought you into not only talking about wrestling a whole lot again, but uh, watching and presenting opinions. How how did you leave Paradise to, to get back into wrestling? Well, I haven't left Paradise. I'm still here. Uh, fortunately, with podcasting, I'm able to to do it wherever I am. So. I'm I'm looking out the window at the place I love to live and everything's cool. My dog's downstairs. I just got back from a a nice hawk a nice uh, hike with her. So it's all good. But, you know, I've never really I, I've never really left wrestling, you know, emotionally or or in my mind. You know, I'm not active anymore. I'm on the outside kind of looking in. Um but, you know, it's it's been a big part of my life. You know, all of my life, really, since I was probably 6 or 8 years old as a as a kid growing up as a fan and obviously you know it became a big part of my career um so i've, I've you know i've i've stayed close to it just not active in it if that makes sense it does make sense and and but i feel like uh and maybe this had more to do with how close you were because other times when you've left wrestling it seems like for instance when you left wcw the first time you were pretty public about you went off and you went fishing and you left wrestling and that was probably the first time you'd left wrestling ever so that was probably pretty necessary to your soul but before you were in this podcasting game did you keep up with what was going on or do you kind of enjoy not having to keep up um well you know i left wcw in 1999 came back in 2000 was there for you know a cup of coffee um left up left wcw again uh, ended up in WWE, spent four or five years in WWE, and then, you know, did a short stint with TNA. So, you know, wrestling is always, you know, I've always, you know, I've had a little bit of time off, but for the most part, up until recently, um, I've always been pretty active in the business. But for me, you know, now um, I don't watch a lot of wrestling. Um, I drop in, for example, I watched Monday Night Raw last night or, or at least a portion of it. I can't, I can't watch three hours of it probably anything to be quite honest about it mm -hmm. um 
but I do drop in uh, if there's something in particular that that I know is going to happen or I think might happen or if it's you know something going on with someone that I I know personally I'll drop in um, but for the most part you know I, I don't watch on a regular basis and and I'm I'm fine with it you know I I stay in touch with the product. Uh, you know, I'm well aware of everything that's going on, but I don't feel the need to sit and watch five or six hours of wrestling a week. Yeah. Now, you you had to do the three-hour TV thing uh, when you were doing Nitro a little bit. Is it is it as difficult as it would appear to be to program three hours, not just for a pay-per-view, but for like a regular wrestling television show? You know, two answers to that. You know, one answer is... Um, no, it's not hard. It's really no harder to format a three-hour show than it is a two-hour show. Um, but formatting it and formatting it to be entertaining and holding <laughs> the audience, holding the audience's attention, are two entirely different things. And yes, that's very difficult because, as I just said, and I, I don't think I'm much different than probably your average person uh, out there. It just to sit and watch three hours of wrestling, no matter how much of a wrestling fan you are, you start tuning out. You know, you'll you'll drop in and out based on what's happening, but it's just too much. Um, can you imagine watching, you know, Game of Thrones? Can you imagine watching three hours of Game of Thrones, you know, every week, 52 weeks a year? Eventually, you just get sick of it. No matter how much you love it, eventually, you just get tired of it. And that's kind of where I'm at. And, and yeah, three hours of entertaining television that will hold an audience and an audience's attention and deliver a number every week. That's a monumental task. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I actually think, and I don't know if you've noticed this cause you're probably not watching quite as closely as I am that the reformatting of the show recently, where it seems like instead of going the kind of fairly structured, Opening of the show, we set something up that's going to be paid off in the closing segment of the show. They've adjusted that, WWE has, uh, so that the payoff generally happens at the end of the second hour. And then at the end of the third hour, you get some kind of variety thing like the Cruiserweight, which for me, watching it has actually refreshed things because all of a sudden... I guess the Cruiserweights are, or whoever's in that last segment, I feel like I, I care about more. But more importantly... It's not quite so structured. It's a it's two hours to tell this story that starts in the beginning instead of three, which is the long haul. And I end up feeling like, okay, I can sit through two hours and then I kind of want to see what's going to happen in the third hour because I feel like the beginning of the show was already paid off. Does that, does that make sense? <clears throat> Excuse me. It makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure after um, <clears throat> having produced this three-hour format, I don't know how long it's been now, about two years. Mm-hmm year and a half, two years, uh, since WWE went three hours. I'm sure they've got, you know, a, a ton of research and data that help them arrive to that, you know, new format. And it kind of makes sense. You're, you, it's like you've got your two-hour show, which is even that, you know, two-hour show is, is, a, is, is a challenge in and of itself. Yeah. But you can structure it and format it in a way that you can hold your audience. Um and maybe that third hour they now recognize is kind of a bonus hour for your hardcore fans or West Coast fans. Um, I don't know. Yeah. You know I, I, I don't know what the logic is, but I'm sure they've got the data and, and the research to support it. When you start, uh, when you got into this podcasting world and it wasn't just telling your stories, but it was also analyzing 
the modern day product does, does a bug get in your ear a little bit when you start like for instance getting your hands on what you think of the Bray Wyatt thing and you can now tell an audience this is what I think of this why it does or doesn't work and then you end up obviously I see you on Twitter you get the feedback from people and when your creative ideas when they when they are when they're resonating with your audience do you start to feel like oh maybe I should be back in this in this creative thing maybe I should be back in this wrestling world no, it, it doesn't really happen. And to be honest with you, I, 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 I'm very hesitant to give my opinion. Uh, if you know, if you listen to my show with Nick, of course, Nick Hausman, you know, he's at Russell Zone. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's on top of everything. And and he, he's constantly, you know, digging to, to try to get my, my take on whatever is current and happening. And I really, you know, I'll, I'll give my opinion. I'm an opinionated person by nature. Um, but I hate to be critical. Um because I, after all these years, you know, one of the things that I've learned, you know, 30 years of being in the business and, you know, 15 or 20 of that being actively involved in the creative side of things is that it's just a matter of taste. You know, wrestling is a very subjective kind of product and there is no one size fits all. And, and even though I may not like, you know, the sister Abigail, you know, turn of events, you know, that we're talking about, um, other people do. Yeah. And and I'm reluctant to voice a strong opinion because there's so many people out there that I know will and should disagree with me. So I, I tend not to try to to share my opinions too much. But, you know, there are times – I mean, I do feel strong. I'm still passionate about the business. I still believe in my heart um, that there are some things that I really believe in that I know would still work today. And I would love to see them happen, not for me, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, but for the business. And I, I, I still believe they would. Do you care at the reaction? Because the the thing that you run into, like for instance, when I'm on Twitter and I'm reacting to something positively about the show, inevitably I know that whatever I like on the show, I'm going to get you know people online telling me, "Wow, oh, you're just a shill." You know, of course you like it, what, which is fine. But do you you? are on the opposite side of the coin, which I think a lot of guys who used to be on TV are on, which is the minute you get critical of anything, you're going to have somebody accusing you of being that bitter, you know, back in my day guy, which I feel like would get annoying. Like that, that's what would make me not want to kind of be critical of things is like, I'm trying to be insightful and instead, you know, that gets thrown at me. Oh, you know, it's been that way my entire career. Yeah. You know, I've been kind of a heat seeking magnet in so many different ways for such a long period of time that when people are critical of things that I say or do or think or express, I, it just, it quit bothering me about 25 years ago. Um, Maybe not that long, probably quit bothering me about 15 years ago. Um, And, but now I just, I have a pretty thick skin. I feel like expressing an opinion you know, as I did, um, you know, the other day about Josh Barnett. Right. It was, you know, I didn't mean to be critical of him personally. And, and looking back at my tweet, it prob- I can see why he thought it was. But it was an observation. And to your point, about 50% of the responses I got were very supportive of my point of view. And 50% of the responses I got were, 
you know, who cares what you think? You washed up has been. He kicked your ass in the shoot fight. Like that really matters. You know? Right. And you just kind of take it in stride and you laugh at it. And so, sometimes I think it's all funny. You know, sometimes I really, I, I'll sit down with a beer and read through that stuff and, you know, chuckle and have a good time doing it. So yeah, that becomes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that much to me, bro. What was it? What was it? And I, I, I believe it because a, a thing does happen that when you're around long enough and you get criticized long enough by enough people, you really do develop that thick skin. Um, what was it like, though, early on? And this is obviously before. This is when the internet was still, you know, dirt sheets and message boards and things like that. But it was more than just the internet. It was people. When you first rise to prominence in WCW, and you do so pretty quickly, and, uh, you know, according to a lot of people out of nowhere, and you're a young guy at the time, were you ready... I'm sure you were ready for the power and the responsibility that came with the job. Were you ready for the spotlight and the fact that, like you say, that that now everybody is going to be criticizing everything that you do because they don't think you should have the job, they they whatever, because that's what people do? You know, I, I kind of beg to differ. You know, looking back on it now, and I've got a much better perspective on things at this stage in my life than I did when I was in the middle of it, obviously, but... I don't think I re- really was ready for the power and the responsibility, huh. quite honestly. Huh. Um, I, I grew into it. Or it was, I was, it was a baptism, baptism by fire, really. Um, there was a lot I had to learn very, very quickly, you know, in the circumstances that I was in. I wasn't afraid of it. I wasn't intimidated by it. It didn't. It wasn't a daunting challenge for me. Um, to me, it just seemed like a natural thing. I, I had an opportunity to fight for an opportunity and, and to fight to win. And I, I loved that kind of a situation and I didn't think about it too much, but looking back at it now, you know, there were so many things that I could have done better, could have done smarter, um, could have anticipated better than I did, could have seen, you know, certain things developing more clearly than I did while they were happening. But you know, that's life. You know, I, I, I was working for a company, you know, when I went to work for WCW in 1992 or whenever it was, it was a company that was, you know, hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging money, getting all kinds of bad press. Nobody in the Turner Broadcasting Organization wanted the company even in the building, more or less being a part of the, you know, company's portfolio. And the only reason it existed was because of one guy by the name of Ted Turner. Everybody in the entire Turner Broadcasting family wanted to pull the plug on that company. That's when I got hired. And it only got worse, you know, for a couple of years, you know, subsequent to me getting hired, you know, ending up with Bill Watts, you know, doing what he did and, and creating all the turmoil that he created. Um, so when I took over the company, it had been beaten, battered, destroyed, and, and hemorrhaged so badly that honestly, I had nowhere else to go but up. And that's the way I looked at it. Yeah. You know, Bill Shaw, when he hired me, and I, you know, I didn't take over the company immediately. You know, people, you know, think that, or maybe that's part of the urban narrative. People that just don't pay that close attention assume that that's how it happened. I, I didn't take over the company immediately. You know, I was hired as the executive producer by Bill Shaw. And my responsibilities at that time were narrowly confined to the look and feel of the product. And by that, I mean from a production point of view, not from a creative point of view, not from a talent point of view. I had nothing to do with any of those things. 
I was strictly involved with the physical production of the show. That I did have a lot of control over. And it was over a period of time that my responsibilities started to grow because, quite frankly, I was having success. I'd get, you know, two feet of rope and I'd give them, you know, four feet of progress. Right. They'd give me another six feet of rope. I'd give them another 10 feet of progress. And over a period of time, my responsibilities began to expand until ultimately, eventually, I ended up running the whole company. But it, it took a lot of time to get there. And, and it, quite frankly, I had to prove myself. At what point did you feel like that thick skin had developed to the point where not only are you ready for criticism or whatever, but you actually yourself, at what point were you ready for the job? If you weren't quite ready for it when you first got it, at what point in your career were you like, what was that? Okay, that was Eric when he was ready for it and, and, and running on all cylinders. You know, and that's a really, really good question. Um, I don't think I ever really was. <laughs> you know, there was, I, I was young enough and, you know, I'll be honest, I, I've never worked in a corporate environment before. I had no understanding of corporate culture. I, I, you know, I was brought into the situation I was brought into, WCW being what it was, as we discussed. I was thrust into a position um, where I had nowhere else to go but up, quite frankly, because it had been bad, battered and bruised so badly by my predecessors. Um, and I just looked at it as a challenge and, and it wasn't until I left Turner and probably a couple of years later where just because of my experience, you know, and, and the other things that I've done that I've, I was really able to look back and go, wow, you really, really weren't ready for that position in that kind of a corporate environment. And by that co kind of a corporate environment, I mean, AOL Time Warner, right? I, I, I was still operating up until the day that I left, you know, on September 10th, 1999 was when I was asked to leave the first time. Um, I was operating, you know, the way I had for the previous three or four years, which was just go with your gut, work your balls off, take as many risks as you can and hope that you deliver. And that had worked for me. And, and I knew back then you know, I had Ted Turner in my corner. Ted was the kind of, you know, leader that encouraged you to take risks. He didn't expect you to be, you know, right 100% of the time or successful 100% of the time. He did expect you to, to work hard, do your research, have a great instinct, and be willing to have the courage to, to, to execute based on your vision. And he rewarded that. He was a real entrepreneur in that respect. But the AOL Time Warner culture that I was thrust into kind of unknowingly and, and being very naive to that type of a corporate culture was exactly the opposite. So I was operating in kind of one universe in a very entrepreneurial, grab it by the balls, make it work kind of world, which had been working for me up until the AOL Time Warner merger. And while Ted was still the captain of the ship, but once Ted was no longer captain of the ship, my approach to business was the antithesis of what, you know, my peers at AOL Time Warner expected of me. And I, I was too naive to know that. Well, and I'm sure at that point there was also the ego that had developed in taking this company that was hemorrhaging everything and turning it into, for a period of time, the number one wrestling company in the world. Like, I, I would imagine that if new bosses come in, you don't want to do what they say because what you say is what's worked. So who are they to tell you what to do? It really wasn't that. 
you know, and I, I know there's, you know, probably an urban narrative out there that suggests that I had this major ego, mm-hmm. and it wasn't that. I mean, there I would was... have had an ego. That's the only reason why I assumed it. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, I've heard it before, and I've read it before, and you know, people have those opinions, and for whatever reason. But for me, it wasn't ego. It was just that I knew, right? You know, I mean, I knew what I knew. I, I knew what I learned. I. I'd experienced the failure that a lot of executives above me were convincing me to to attempt to try again. I knew what was right. I knew what was wrong because I knew my product. Whereas a lot of the executives that I was dealing with later on, you know, right before I left, quite honestly, there were several of them that didn't even know what night of the show, Monday Night Raw, or excuse me, Monday Night Nitro was on. Right. Like, I mean, it- they knew nothing about the product. They knew nothing about, you know, where we had been, how we had gotten to where we were at that point, 97, 98. Mm-hmm. They, they had no understanding of it, yet they were really, you know, front and center and ready to tell me how to run a company that they knew nothing about. And that was a big conflict for me. Well, that is the story of pro wrestling, isn't it? That, like, no matter what kind of amazing things you can accomplish in a, in a business or a television or an entertainment frame— at the end of the day, to a lot of people, it's still wrestling, and wrestling is wrestling, and it's silly, right? Like, like, like that thing, kind of, for whatever reason, for some people, and it changes for a lot of people, but there's always going to be some people that that thing has never quite gone away. Even now, I don't think, for a lot of people, that thing that wrestling is still, well, that's wrestling, has never gone away. No, it's really amazing, you know, and I've... <clears throat> You know, I'm still in the entertainment business. I, I write, produce, create, sell television shows. And, and I work with a lot of really talented people <clears throat> that have never really been involved in a wrestling business. And it never ceases to amaze me how much admiration, you know, a lot of very high-level people in Hollywood have for for what wrestling is and its impact on pop culture and, and entertainment in general – but they have absolutely no understanding of why it works. None. It to them, it's just like big guys in tights hitting each other with chairs and yelling and wow! If you got a lot of pyro, anybody can do that. Right. And it, it, there's nothing so far from the truth. And I think in some respects, wrestling in many ways is more difficult in, in terms of storytelling and character building and entertainment than a lot of other properties are because you, you know, wrestlers are not actors. They're not trained actors. They're great performers. Mm -hmm. And some of them are way better at it than others in terms of their microphone skills and their ability to do in rings and all that kind of stuff. But their story, their dialogue, if you will, is a physical dialogue. You have to create that good guy versus bad guy, you know, context not with dialogue, but with physical action. And it's really much more difficult and complex than, you know, so many people that are very high up in the entertainment business give it credit for. Yeah, and it never really gets pointed out either that, like, for every time you hear about what a bad actor a wrestler is, we learned this experiment when they started bringing in celebrity guest hosts every week on Raw, and they would let them get in the ring half the time. Like, there are a lot of actors that are terrible wrestlers. And the, and the, and the, and the, this story that gets told in the ring with believability, which is essential, like when, when a guy who's not a wrestler, no matter how great of an actor he is, gets in the ring to, to tell this physical story like you're talking about, the audience, they, the, it loses them. It, they completely lose the audience because I'm looking at that and I don't believe it. 
and they're not telling me the story because they don't know how to tell that type of a story. Well, they not only don't know how to tell that type of a story, but they're in a world that they've never been in before. Yeah. You know, an actor on a television, you know, and I've done a couple things on, on, you know, sets and I've been around it. I'm not an actor, <clears throat> but I've, you know, I've done enough and been around it enough that, you know, producing a, a scripted series or a movie is so much different than entertaining a live crowd. You know, you get three three lines of dialogue, you know, in one take, and then you break, and you know, you do it. You, you do another two or three lines of dialogue, and you do it from a couple different angles. And I mean, producing a scripted series for traditional actors is nothing, nothing like going out and entertaining twenty or twenty five thousand people in a live format where there is no, you don't get to do it again. You know, there is no take twos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's you get one shot and you do it. And you know when that really became apparent to me? It's become apparent to me several times throughout my career. But the time I think I remember most vividly was with Randy Savage. And Randy and I went out to L.A. to do the Jeff Foxworthy show. It was a sitcom um, back in the day. I hate using that phrase, but back <laughs> in the day. Um it was a sitcom. It was doing really, really well. And they had a, you know, a, 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 an episode written that was about wrestling. And Randy and I flew out. And we were both in it. And I remember at the end of it, you know, Jeff Foxworthy came over to me and he said, man, I can't believe what a natural Randy Savage is. And, you know, the, the things that they had Randy doing were not that difficult. It didn't require, you know, you didn't have to go to... You know, <laughs> you didn't have to go to acting school. Yeah. You know, you didn't have to study Shakespeare, right? But for Randy, it was second nature. It was easy for him. But actors are just not used to being handed a script and saying, okay, this is what we want you to do. Ready? Take one, go. And then doing it <laughs> yeah. in one take. Right. You know, it didn't, it didn't take 30 or 40 takes, which no. is what actors are used to. Not the, uh, the, hey, we just wrote this just now. We just thought of saying, here, we just wrote this here. You got to go live. Here's the script. Go, go, go. And, yep. and and then and you go and you just do it and however or, it comes out that's how it's done or better yet here's the script just go out there and wing it and see how it turns out <laughs> yeah. and then being able to get a feel for that scene and that moment and deliver something that was probably better than what was originally written for you yeah yeah now so you know you talk about uh the shape wcw was in when you first took over as executive producer and how it was in such terrible shape and everything what is the difference between Eric Bischoff comes into WCW, he starts doing his work, a few years later Hulk Hogan comes and joins, and the two of you, uh, you know, with everything else that you guys did, but the two of you at the forefront kind of reinvent this company and turn it into a bit of a juggernaut. What was the difference uh, when you guys kind of tried to do it again in TNA, and obviously it did not work out? Well, we didn't try to do it again in TNA. You know, I, <clears throat> the only reason TNA hired me is because they had no choice. Dixie Carter wanted Hulk Hogan. That was obvious. Mm -hmm. But Hulk didn't trust anybody in TNA. And I don't say trust in the sense of being devious or malicious or anything like that, but he didn't trust their judgment or their ability. And he certainly didn't trust Vince Russo in any way, shape, or form. And Terry made it pretty clear that if, if he was going to go to TNA, 
I had to be there to kind of oversee whatever creative was involved with Hulk Hogan. And that's really my, that was my only job. I, I, I had no, I, I didn't go to company meetings. I wasn't involved in any financial discussions. I, I, I mean, my role was really just to oversee creative as it related to the Hulk Hogan character. Now, over time, that changed. It, my role kind of evolved. And some of that was just natural. Some of it was because of things that were happening internally. Um, and I, I had more influence over the creative side of things. But neither Hulk or I had one ounce. There is no measure of control that we had over anything that had to do with strategy, tactics, you know, anything to do, financial, anything to do with that company. We weren't invited. Our, our opinions weren't asked for. Huh. Um, that company was run by Janice Carter and, and Bob Carter and Dixie Carter. And, and we had nothing to do with it. So when you, so the, there was, there was a, you know, when I ran WCW, I obviously, I, had a lot of control over yeah. all aspects of, of the business. When I was working in TNA, I had no control over anything other than creative. And do you at a point, like just start to roll your eyes and be like, all right, well, I guess this is what we're doing. Like, as in I'm going to control what I have control over and the rest of it. I just kind of have to, regardless of if I think it's the greatest thing in the world or not, just grin and bear it. Um, no, I wasn't that mature about it. You know, and even to this day, you know, what I get pissed off about is, you know, despite what people may or may not think, it's really got nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with blowing opportunity. You know, as I've gotten older and more experienced and just been through, you know, so much more, I recognize how difficult real opportunity and real momentum is to come by. And it's getting harder and harder every day in, in every business, not just in the entertainment business or, or the wrestling business. But the world is much more complex, much more competitive. Um, people are much more adverse to risk. It is just a much more difficult time now than it was 15 or 20 years ago to, to be an entrepreneur and take a risk and have it pay off. So when I see people blowing opportunities, yeah. whether it has anything to do with me or not, you know, I, st I still get pissed off. That's usually when I speak up It's because you, you, you know, when sometimes, and again, this is just something that I've learned. You're in the middle of a situation. Sometimes it's, you're just in one is just incapable of really understanding what a great opportunity you have. And you really still, you know, <laughs> you don't know what you're missing until it's gone, mm -hmm. you know? And when I see people blowing opportunities, it just pisses me off. And that was probably that characterized the majority of my time in TNA. They just made just one stupid decision after another. And the last one compounded the previous one. I mean, it's just I've never seen anything like it. It, it, was, it was really, really frustrating. To the point that you couldn't even apply logic to it. Like, okay, I don't agree with this. There was this. no logic. Right. There was no logic. Of, it, and nobody wanted to hear. It was nobody wanted to listen. People that knew nothing at all about the wrestling business. 
nothing at all didn't even want to listen to someone who did. And I mean, not not follow their lead, not give them the keys to the kingdom, not let them have control, but just have a conversation and hear a point of view. But there was a there was a tendency, I think, because everybody was so afraid. I mean, none of them knew what the hell they were doing. Most of them that are still there don't. And they became very intimidated when they were around people that did. I ah. mean, really intimidated and defensive. And it was just so obvious uh, on, on so many different levels. And that's that really kind of characterized the majority of my time there. Because I mean, they... there was people there that I liked. You know, I, I like Dixie Carter. She's a nice person. I like her husband, Serge. He's a good person. Yeah. I would, they're nice people to go out and have dinner with. But, man, being in business with them was like, ugh. Yeah. It was. It was like it, it was like a hand grenade tossing contest, you know, with ki- with kids. I mean, it was horrible. And it's it's got to be frustrating too to be like, well, the key to successful business is to utilize your players' strengths and to you know kind of hide their weaknesses and just just figure out what the strengths of your players are and and put the spotlight on them and that's you know on the air and off the air. And so to have people that have strengths and be made insecure by those strengths to the point where not only will you not use them, but you'll refuse them. Like, like even if they're handed to you, if they're demanded to you, if they're shouted at you, you'll refuse them. It's just, it's gotta be, it's gotta be unbelievably frustrating. Well, it's, you know, a better way to kind of contextualize it for me, at least from my point of view was they, they felt very comfortable playing to the lowest common denominator. Mm Mm-hmm. Because that wasn't threatening. The minute they had to play up, it 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 just overwhelmed them. Right. I see. I see. Now we've all heard uh, the stories by now of like the the plan that you had for WCW coming back uh, that that before WWE bought the company that you had your investors and everything and you lost the TV, but there was a pay per view in the works and there was a vision in your head and everything and. WWE.com has posted articles about it now, and the story's been told on the DVDs and whatnot. With the given the benefit of hindsight, knowing what the culture looked like, you know, whatever it was, 17, 16 years ago, and what it would then go on to look like over the course of the next few years, do you today think that the vision that you had in your head for what WCW 2.0 under you? Do you think that that would have worked in hindsight, honestly? Mm, good question. It's really hard to give an – I mean, I want to be honest about it. Part yeah. of me thinks that it would because I learned. You know, I, I had – I did it once before. I made errors along the way, <clears throat> fell short for for a couple of different reasons. Some of it was all my responsibility. Some A lot of it wasn't. Um, going back to the AOL Time Warner merger, we were set up to fail. AOL Time Warner wanted WCW to fail, and <clears throat> they were successful in that, and I wasn't able to fight it. But there were still a lot of decisions and choices that I made along the way um, previous to that that I learned from. And, I, th- you know, part of me thinks we would have been successful. Um, because again, we, we learned from some of our mistakes. We, we adjusted to the new marketplace. 
Um, we, we did the research and knew what we had to do in order to be profitable. So I'd like to think that, yeah, because wrestling is still a very viable product that, you know, we had the horsepower behind us, not just with me, obviously, but, you know, with Brian Bedall and, and, and Steve Greenberg at Fusion Media. These are very, very, and they still are, very, very, very successful guys in the world of entertainment. Um, extremely successful guys. Mm -hmm. So between their resources and their experience and knowledge and what I could bring to the table, yeah, a big part of me, a good portion of me, believes that, yes, we could have been, you know, successful but i'm also smart enough to know that you know might not have been you know it's it's hard to say it's a hypothetical that's just too hard to give an honest answer to totally and especially because you're you're still on some level married to it it was your it was your baby for a period of time who who i and i'm sure you've you've said this before and you might have even said it in the dvd and stuff but who uh who would you have revolved the company around in terms of being your big star your big one or two stars I think Bill Goldberg was really the guy yeah. that we would have built the company around. Certainly we would have still maintained, you know, some of the higher profile talent like Hulk and, and others. But I think everybody recognized that Bill Goldberg was going to be, at least at that point for us, for WCW, Bill Goldberg would have been the guy. So uh, I'm sure, I, well, I know it's gotten back to you because I've seen you uh, retweet some of the memes that have gone out uh, on your Twitter account. But uh, Bret Hart was obviously on my podcast last week uh, and he had, quite a few colorful things to say about you and his thoughts on you and uh and and you you know just just he was he's still very unhappy with the way he was treated uh in WCW did you read that hear his comments i'm sure you've heard them before no i didn't i, I didn't listen to to your show with Brett mm -hmm. um i'm generally aware of the kind of things that Brett says because he's been saying them for years um, there's nothing new there. Um, I'm sure he didn't break any news. Mm -hmm. uh, he's just a, you know, he's a, just a miserable guy. You know, he's he's the type of guy, <clears throat> and I said it in one of my, you know, responses on Twitter. Mm -hmm. You know, Brett's a guy that's got a giant hole in his soul, and he's got to fill it with hate for somebody. You know, when he came to work for me, he hated Vince McMahon. He hated everybody in the McMahon family. He hated Shawn Michaels. He, he didn't want to work with Hulk Hogan. He hated Ric Flair. You know, he hated Kevin Nash. He hated Scott Hall. He hated everybody. And I had to listen to that. So he didn't want to, um, he, he didn't want to do anything major with any of those guys? No, it was, you know, it was, it was a major effort to get him and Rick on, you know, the same page. Um, and it was because of Brett, not because of Rick. Mm-hmm. Bret Hart just hated everybody. And, in, and if you've just watched him or listened to him over the years, you know, he got a chance to go into the WWE Hall of Fame, so he buried the hatchet with Vince McMahon and Shawn Michaels. Of course he did. But, you know, look, Bret showed up in WCW, and, you know, it, it, it makes me laugh um, when he says he doesn't like how he was treated because we paid him a ton of money. We treated him extremely well. And here was a guy that would show up 45 minutes before television started, before a live TV show. And he'd show up looking like he'd been sleeping in a gutter for three days. And he had no energy, he had no real desire to integrate himself, insert himself into the process. He, he, he wasn't at all passionate about anything he did from day one. 
See, this is this yeah. is this is where the uh, the the crossing of streams happens because on the show last week, Brett said that he showed up to WCW like eager to really put Vince McMahon in his place and make WCW, you know, this big giant thing and make Vince McMahon rue the day that he had ever, you know, thrown Bret Hart out of the company. But it's hard to believe that he would be able to have that attitude and also, you know, have this attitude that you're describing of a guy who doesn't want to do anything. I'm sure Brett, like a lot of people at this stage in his life, has to look back at certain times of his life and find ways to feel better about himself. And this is probably one of the ways that Brett does that. But I can assure you from day one, he, and, you know, talk to people that worked with him. You know, nobody has to believe me. I don't expect them to, especially when, you know, Bret Hart's the one that's burying me on your show. But, you know, talk to anybody that worked with him. He hardly ever showed up more than 20 minutes or an hour before showtime. And when he did, it was kind of like, okay, what, what do you have for me? What should I do? What do you want? And then if he liked it, great. If he didn't, he'd, just, he'd go and mope somewhere. And that was Brett from day one. He was a shell of his former self from WWE. And if Brett was really honest about it, he'd look back and realize that he didn't put the effort into it. You know, when you, when you see guys, you know, when you look back and you look at the careers of guys like Steve Austin or Chris Jericho or, you know, The Rock, although I've never worked with The Rock, so I probably shouldn't talk about him. <clears throat> Bill Goldberg is a good, another good example. These are guys that are so passionate and so engaged in what they do, they almost drive you crazy. No, not almost, do. <laughs> They'll drive you nuts. Yeah. Because they're that involved and engaged. And then you have the flip side of that. A guy that shows up, collects his check. What do you want me to do? Oh, okay, whatever. Go mope in a corner, go out and do it, and then complain about it. And that was Bret Hart. And like I said, you know, talk to people that worked with him at that time. It's not just my opinion. Anybody that's really honest about it, that isn't a close friend of Brett's and doesn't want to hurt his feelings, will probably say the exact same thing. Uh, it's interesting that you bring up Chris Jericho. That's one where, uh, w was that one that, in hindsight, you were sorry to have let go? Or do you think that the way you had WCW structured at the time, regardless of how much potential he had, that was just not the place for Chris Jericho to shine? It's really the answer is really both. Yeah, I, I I tried really hard to keep Chris. So, you know, I think it's important, and and I think Chris will tell you this. I I offered Chris a lot of money. I I did everything I could to keep Chris. Chris was determined to leave WCW because he really only used WCW as a stepping stone to get to the WWE. And once he had the opportunity to get to WWE, there's nothing I could have done. Realistically, I don't think I could have kept Chris Jericho in WCW. Right. Particularly when, you know, you look, because Chris saw, and this is, you know, I, I, of all the people that I admire, especially, you know, contemporaries, people that are out there right now, mm -hmm. and I throw Chris into that category, I think Chris is one of the most amazing performers in the history of the business. Wow. And, 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 and I say that because he's been able to reinvent himself so many different times. And, and in the process of doing it, seems to improve his character every time he does. 
and he can play at whatever level he chooses to play at. And not very many people can do that. You know, you, you can, you know, you, you bust your ass to become a Stone Cold Steve Austin or a Rock or a Hulk Hogan or a Ric Flair, but it's really hard for for characters like that, any one of those guys that I just mentioned, to completely rework their character, come back as something completely different and still achieve that same level or greater level of success. It's an amazing quality. Yeah, that, I mean, especially has. when you look at like, you know, we're talking about as long ago as we're talking about, and then you look at Chris Jericho and he just arguably got over the best run of his career. I don't think anybody would expect that out of anybody. So, I mean, you're 100% right about it being remarkable. And I, you know, and I, and I'm, you know, I'd be lying if I said I recognized that back then because sure. I didn't. I knew he was a great talent and I wanted to keep him. But, you know, we had Bill Goldberg, you know, we had Hulk Hogan, we had Randy Savage, we had, you know, Sting. We had a pretty deep, you know, main event level roster. And I did realize that there was no way I was going to be able to break Chris into that category within a time frame that he wanted to be in it. I just couldn't do it. And, you know, I, I, I hated seeing Chris go. I really did. Was it difficult having that much star power? Like, I would imagine, I mean, because just as you're mentioning these names, like, in again, you know, everything is clearer with the magic of hindsight, and now we're referring to these guys like they're legends, and I think, you know, Macho Man Randy Savage has looked at, uh, not that he wasn't looked at as, as, you know, an incredible performer then, but he is, you know, he's on he's on the Mount Rushmore of wrestling now. Is it difficult to have a promotion where you're like, okay, we've got Hulk Hogan, we've got Sting, we've got Ric Flair, we've got Lex Luger, Bill Goldberg. we've got Bill Goldberg, we've got, you know, the NW, we've got Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, we've got all these guys. We also need to figure out where Randy Savage, who in any promotion on the planet is A, if not the top guy, where does he fit in? I, I, to, to, I don't think we can relate in 2017 to a promotion having a problem of where do we fit in Randy Savage? Can you imagine, uh, can you imagine, and this will be a little bit controversial, but imagine what Vince McMahon would be going through and what the talent would be going through if five years ago they had 12 John Cena's. Yeah. That's what I had. Yeah. And, and it's really hard when you've got, you know, 12 Stone Cold Steve Austin's or 12 John Cena's or 12 Hulk Hogan's or 12 Ric Flair's. And I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to compare each one of those guys. That's not my purpose here. But you know what I mean. When you have six or eight or ten players that are all capable of playing at that level at any given time, you know, if you've got ten of them, the other nine of them are pissed off. <laughs> sure, yeah. Because they're not playing at that level. <laughs> and, it, yeah, it is, it is difficult. Yeah, I can only... It's like having it's like having you know, twelve starting quarterbacks. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it can be. And draining. none of them understand why they're not the one on the field at any given moment. Um, so what do you think right now of the of WWE? So they bring the cruiserweights in, and I was gonna say bring back the cruiserweights, but this is the first time the word cruiserweight has been used in WWE. So they bring the cruiserweights in, whatever it was a year ago or so, and now we find out, you know, a few weeks ago that they're running Starcade uh, next month as a house show. And then, last week, we find out that uh, War Games 
is coming to NXT. I mean, are you kind of, not that these were all your ideas, but they were all, Cruiserweights was your idea, but they were all WCW properties. These were all your properties. And I mean, I don't know if people who weren't watching at the time can really appreciate that during the Monday Night Wars, not only was the idea of Vince McMahon ever using a WCW property outrageous, the idea of Vince McMahon referring to a WCW property as, you know, anything but dog excrement was outrageous. Yeah, but, you know, everything changes with time. And now WWE owns that intellectual property. And we see a lot of it on the WWE Network. They're monetizing the hell out of it. Yeah. And they're exposing a lot of that content. They're quite honestly... There are wrestling fans now watching the WWE Network that never heard of WCW or Starcade or War Games. They were too young or they weren't wrestling fans at that time. So it's a whole new generation of fans that are now becoming familiar, you know, with the legacy of of sports entertainment, professional wrestling, at least WCW's role in it, that had never heard of it before. So it only makes sense that they would expand you know their ability to monetize it and and extend it in as many ways as possible so i i mean i think it's great i'm happy to see it i would much rather see you know war games was dusty Rhodes, starcades that's dusty Rhodes. right it wasn't eric bischoff that wasn't ted turner you know it wasn't anybody but dusty Rhodes. and and i think you know for new fans to see it and learn about it um and understand that legacy i think is a wonderful wonderful thing do you, uh, from a production standpoint, I'm interested to see what happens because, especially for war games specifically, because I always thought that was one of the reasons why, you know, the World War Three Battle Royal and the war games match never made it to WWE TV because, from a production standpoint, it makes for kind of an awkward show. I don't know if you found this, but did it didn't? Did you feel like it made for an awkward show when leading up to this match, you've got an extra, a spare ring or two? you know, in, in camera view kind of for the whole pay-per-view. Yeah, it was, you know, world war three was my idea, by the way. Yeah. And that one, I will take credit for, <laughs> for, for better or worse, probably worse in most people's mind. But, um, <clears throat> it did, you know, from a production point of view, it was, it was more than awkward. Yeah. It was completely distracting, very hard to work around and not the most, um, visually stimulating property that I've ever had anything to do with yeah um what do you think of uh your old pal dennis rodman being our our conduit to north korea these days i mean you i'm surprised that more people don't ask you but i feel like you're the guy to ask about this obviously you spent a good amount of time with dennis rodman on a personal and a professional level um is it kind and of I spent time in Pyongyang, North Korea? At, That's as right. Of course of, you did. As, as a guest of the North Korean government. Of course. Wow. Of co- I didn't even put two and two together. That That's kind of remarkable. Of course you did. Um, I, I, knowing, you know, North Korea and knowing Dennis Rodman, is that is that an odd combination to you or on some level do you get it? No, I kind of get it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> first of all, I love Dennis Rodman. And I think Dennis is one of the most misunderstood um, celebrities out there. Dennis Rodman is a very, very smart guy. Dennis Rodman has one of the kindest, gentlest, and most generous hearts of anybody that I've known in a long time. He's a very, very good human being. And he's, he's, he's a much deeper thinker 
than so many people give him credit for because he's a very he's very shy, which is kind of hard to believe when you you know when you think about Dennis Rodman, and you visually you see you know what he manifests out there in public, but when you sit down and talk to Dennis Rodman, <clears throat> once he finally gets comfortable with you, you've, he's a very introspective, um, thoughtful and 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 smart guy. Um, that being said. Uh, I don't think those are any of the reasons <laughs> why um, the North Korean government brought him over there, Kim Jong-un or whatever his name is. Um, I, the North Koreans are bizarre people. And this is, you know, we're, we watch the news every day and we're hearing about North Korea threatening the United States and the United States, you know, <laughs> threatening North Korea. And I listen to all the talking heads and all the so-called experts, you know, giving their opinions and what I think is lost on so many people that have never really been there and have never really seen just how brainwashed everybody in North Korea, and I'm talking about adults and children and probably people in the military as well, they live in an alternative reality that is, if I tried to explain it on this podcast, first of all, I'd bore people. And and they would go to sleep, but it is mind numbing. Mm-hmm. And and one example, and I'll give I'll just give you one example, and this is just one of many. But you know, while we were in North Korea, because I was who I was, and I was with Muhammad Ali most of the time, the North Korean government took us on tours throughout different parts of the city and the country, for that matter. <clears throat> and they would take us to these different monuments and. The cameras were rolling because everything there is for propaganda. They're right. constantly brainwashing the population there and, and controlling everything they think, say, and do. And the cameras were rolling. And I remember having our North Korean interpreter, you know, showing us a a, a, a monument that looked like the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Mm-hmm. It, it was an exact replica. It was smaller, <laughs> but it was an exact replica, actually. Mm-hmm. And they were explaining to us how this monument was built in honor of, you know, the hundreds of thousands of North Koreans that were killed during the carpet bombing uh, by America, you know, during the Korean War. And then this North Korean went on to explain how the North Koreans defeated the Japanese in World War II. <laughs> the North Koreans defeated the Japanese in World War II. There was no mention of Nagasaki or Hiroshima. No. There was no mention of the atomic bomb. There was no mention of the United States being involved in World War II. What they have taught their citizens, the people that, you know, that live and work there every day or enslaved there, is that the North Koreans under the great leader of North Korea at that time defeated the Japanese and ended World War II single-handedly. There's a that that is that's an example, and and everybody believes it because it's all they know. They're completely isolated and shut off from the rest of the world, so they don't know any better. So you've got all these North Koreans in the military and in the government that literally have such a distorted view of the world. That it it that makes everything more frightening than it already is. I find the whole thing fascinating. There's actually a great book. I don't know if you know him. I know you 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 keep up with a lot of the pundits, but uh, there's a guy named Michael Malice who has a great book uh, on North Korea um, called Dear Reader, and it's it's written as like a it, it's written as uh, Kim Jong Un, 
but it's his it's it's as if it's his autobiography but but Michael went he's spent time in North Korea and he's researched all the documents and he's he's become an expert on this and so yeah I mean I find I find the whole thing just endlessly fascinating um it is it- most bizarre experience yes. of my entire life was was going to North Korea. Yeah, next time we talk, like that will probably be the only thing that I want to talk to you about. Now that I, <laughs> now that I just recall that, um, was the as far as stuff you did uh, in WCW at the height, is sitting behind the desk at the Tonight Show like is that the most kind of surreal as a TV kind of guy? Does it get kind of cooler and more surreal than that? You know, I don't think I appreciated it as much as I should have at that time. Yeah. To me, it was, I mean, I did. I mean, I, I knew at that moment that was a pretty big damn deal to throw Jay Leno off his own set, take over the Tonight Show, put my feet up on the desk to pretend <laughs> it was mine. That was that was a pretty cool moment. Looking back at it now, it's even cooler than it was at that moment because I appreciate it more now than I did then. Right, right. Um, before I let you go, my question to you is, I know that you don't watch every single week, but knowing what you know, uh, not save John Cena, save Roman Reigns. If you were to start a wrestling promotion today and you could have your hands on any talent, who would your guy be today? Save John Cena, Roman Reigns, Brock Lesnar. No obvious answers. Like, who's the guy that you would pick? You know, watching last night, I really like Braun. Strowman. Yeah. I would turn the volume down on him just a little bit. Hmm. To me, he's a little overly animated and he doesn't need to be. I mean, I I mean, he's a larger than life character when he gets up for morning and gets up in the morning and has a cup of coffee. And I, to me, they've got the, the dial turned up on him just a little too much, but hard to deny that he could be, he could be the guy. Yeah. That's a great Um, answer. I, I really like him, and I get so much. I, I don't. It's not heat, but people chuckle when I say this because I don't think they think I'm serious. But I dig Dolph Ziggler. <laughs> I, I see. Even you, you don't even know how to take it. Yeah. I. He's just. He's versatile. He's yeah. incredibly athletic. He's got a great look, and he reminds me of John Cena in a way. Not John Cena. I'm sorry. Um, Kurt Angle. Huh. He. Re- because although he you know he doesn't have that badass kind of killer persona that, that Kurt had, he is capable of it. I mean he, he he's an amazing you know amateur wrestler, but he, he can be a badass if he chooses to be, or he can be a comedic character. Just I mean that was the thing that I always liked about Kurt mm-hmm. is you know on Monday he could be the world's most you know he could be the deadliest wrestler on the planet, and on Tuesday he's doing stand up comedy. Yeah. And, and he does them both extremely well. And I love that kind of versatility in a character because if you have that much range, if you have somebody that has the ability to, to go from one extreme, you know, being a badass and a killer and credible and believable, but then at the drop of a hat can become a comedy stick, I, if you've got that much range as a talent, there's a lot you can do with that. And when I look at, you know, when I look at Dolph and I just know what he's capable of doing and I, I just feel like, you know, they're missing the boat. It's just me, I guess. Well, listen, Eric, I uh, I really appreciate you jumping on with me and uh, and putting your two cents in on all this. I could talk to you for 
hours upon hours about all this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna allow you to get back to your uh, your your paradise life away from all of this. Where can people uh, find your podcast, and where can people find the podcast network? It's more than a podcast network, but this 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 business model that you've set up to allow uh, other people to 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 jump on board. Yeah, well, the IRW network is still we're still building that platform. Yeah, you know, it's it's up and available, but it's in what they call a beta, which mm-hmm. means it's work in progress. And anybody that's ever built a platform like this understands that there's a lot of bugs and issues and technical challenges you have to deal with. And sometimes you can only find them once you're kind of up and running. So we're in what we call a beta phase right now. Um, and you can go to the IRWnetwork.com and you can see what's out there. Um, but it's not really an active site that we're promoting too hard. Um, Bischoff on Wrestling, the podcast, you know, we're on every Wednesday, usually Wednesday evenings about 6 o'clock. And you can find us on iTunes or the MLW Radio Network. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at eBischoff. I love it, man. Thank you so much. And uh, next time you find yourself in New York, uh, let's make a point and, and do this again. Look forward to it, my man. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Here is Sam Roberts. Boom. Eric Bischoff here on the podcast. Talk about an icon. Big thanks to Eric Bischoff and everybody over at MLW, uh, Court Bauer, for helping uh, uh, hook that up. By the way, MLW has a pretty good video network, too. Uh, and you can check out the show that they did. They did a, a, a one-off, one-shot uh, indie show in Orlando recently and real quick turned it around uh, so that you can download and stream the video over on their site. Uh, it's a pay-per-video, but uh, it's, it's, it's worthwhile. I love watching guys uh, put on indie shows and keep the production value high. It really, it makes wrestling feel like a bigger deal. And that's what MLW did with their show uh, recently. It, it really, it felt like a big deal, important show. It didn't feel like uh, I was being insulted as a wrestling fan. And it didn't feel like it was just some rinky-dink thing that a carny was putting on. It felt like a lot of care had been put into putting together a show where the production value was high. And the wrestling was quality. So check it out if you get a chance. Uh, go uh, uh, over to the MLW Video Network uh, and uh, find the show. It was, a, it was a really good show with uh, Ricochet and Shane Strickland. and uh, It was great. Check it out. And uh, thanks to Eric Bischoff. You know, people now ask me, who, who do you think was telling the truth? Was it Eric Bischoff? Was it Bret Hart? I, 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 like all stories. I think the truth about the Eric Bischoff-Bret Hart beef is, is somewhere in the middle. I think that Bret Hart was probably not nearly as easy to work with as he thinks he was in WCW. And I think maybe Eric Bischoff doesn't understand how difficult it was to get anything done in WCW. So uh, I very much appreciate uh, Eric Bischoff doing the show, uh, an icon, and so cool to get to talk to him for the first time. Uh, if you want to, I'm actually giving you a chance to talk to an icon. Bully Ray, Bubba Ray Dudley, he's going to be at the live Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. That's Tuesday, October 24th. It's only a week and change away if you're listening to this the day it comes out. It might be less than a week away, depending on when you're listening to this. But Bully Ray, Bubba Ray Dudley will be in the house at the Highline Ballroom. You can go to highlineballroom.com. You can get tickets. Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Get those VIP tickets. He will be there with me for the VIP meet and greet. And at some point during the show, we will have contests. We will have giveaways. And I have two. They're sitting right in front of me. I posted them on Instagram. You can see them for yourself. Two copies of Second Nature signed by both Ric Flair and Charlotte Flair 
and I'm going to be giving those out to two of you who show up at the Highline Ballroom uh, on October 24th. So get those tickets now, will you? And while you're at it, you might as well get a get a T-shirt. Wear it to the Highline Ballroom. Really impress me. Maybe I'll see one of you guys wearing a Sam Roberts T-shirt, a not Sam T-shirt, a Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast T-shirt, and I'll be so impressed by it that I'll have to give you one of these signed books. You go to notsam.com slash merch, notsam.com slash merch, and you're going to be able to find it all right there. Now, no reason to waste any more time. We've got a lot to dig into in the state of wrestling this week. Uh, Coming off of Hell in a Cell, boy, boy, do I have a lot of thoughts, Uh, as well as everything that went down on Raw and SmackDown. So much. So let's start right, uh, yeah, right now. It's now time for this week's State of Wrestling. You gotta start with the SmackDown brand this week, right? I don't know what other choice that you have. We had SmackDown, we had Hell in a Cell. One of the most newsworthy, I guess, pay-per-views of the SmackDown era, SmackDown exclusive pay-per-views of the uh, uh, of the current draft era. I think so. It was one of the first SmackDown exclusive pay-per-views that left people talking afterwards to this extent, like to the point where people were trying to get a, a state of wrestling going specifically for Hell in a Cell. And honestly, the pay-per-view deserved it. The n- newsworthiness of the pay-per-view deserved to have its own state of wrestling thrown in there somewhere. I'm just, I'm only one man, you know, what can I do? I'm one man. However, I'm going to say something that could be controversial, and it definitely will be controversial. It'll be disagreeable to some people, but it's how I feel. I want to preface this by saying that uh, after watching SmackDown this week, and I tweeted it, so if you follow me, you saw it, I've come to the conclusion that at this moment in time, the Usos are, for my money, the best performers in WWE. Now, that's not the controversial thing that I was going to say, but I still think that's also very controversial. And hear me out on this. I'm talking about all-around performers right now in WWE, and that means in the ring, that means promo, that means uh, the way the crowd reacts to them, that means believability, that means relevance, that means all of it. And the Usos have it all. And... I really can't believe, I feel at this moment like the Usos could do anything. I, I buy into this idea that uh, they beat the New Day. And I don't mean that they just won a match against the New Day. I mean that they the New Day for a long time was holding the trophy of not only the best tag team in the WWE, but arguably the most entertaining force, the most entertaining entity in WWE. And for my money, the new uh, uh, the Usos have taken that title. I think that they're my favorite things to watch in WWE now. I think they're the best things in WWE at the moment. And a lot of that has to do with how relevant they feel. A lot of they they just feel like they're of the time. They feel like they're portraying themselves, meaning I don't think that I have to stretch to believe what I'm seeing with the Usos. I'm I'm presented something by these two, and immediately I buy into the characters without thinking about, what is this character? Who is this character? I can kind of see the man behind this character. I'd love to know his intentions. It's not anybody portraying anything. It's Jimmy and Jay Uso. That's what I see when I watch SmackDown. 
and when I see them in matches. That's what I see from them. And that, that that's important. And you can't say that about a ton of people, even on the current day roster. That's not a given in wrestling. That's that's an elite crop in wrestling. And the Usos are there on top of that, consistently, consistently having great matches to the point, and the New Day get credit for this too, don't get me wrong, but to the point where I was not fatigued when they announced that the Usos and the New Day were going to Hell in a Cell together. I wasn't even fatigued when the tag team title changed again. And that's a lot because I don't like rapid title changes. I like when titles stay on people. I don't like the I don't like the rapid changes. And I don't like seeing the same matches over and over and over again. But that said, I could have continued to watch the Usos in the New Day. Um as I was watching the the number one contender match go down on SmackDown, I was thinking to myself how cool any of these matches would be with the Usos. I feel like the Usos have been elevated to a point where they're where the New Day was, where there's the tag team division, but then there's the New Day. When you watch SmackDown now, there's the tag team division, but then there's the Usos. And the New Day will always have now that royalty. The New Day will always have that claim to fame. But the New Day, I I think we'll see a transition in what they're doing. I don't think the New Day feels stale at all. I think they could keep doing what they're doing for another couple of years and everybody would be fine with it. But I think that because the New Day are who the New Day are, they're constantly adapting and evolving and changing and getting to the next level. And so I think the New Day will. I wouldn't be surprised if we started seeing singles runs from New Day members. I don't think they'll split up. I think that would be a mistake if they split up. But I think that they will remain the New Day. But I think soon you will see a singles championship existing in the New Day. That said, the Usos should stay together and just dominate the tag team field. I wouldn't be surprised if after WrestleMania you see the Usos on Raw and coming over there because they are to SmackDown tag teams what Charlotte was to the Raw women's division. In that there was no question on Raw as to who the dominant woman was. It was Charlotte. Now, there is no question about who the dominant team is on SmackDown. It's the Usos. And I would probably at this point, on paper, rather watch an Usos match than a match with just about anybody else on the roster. That's how high I am on the Usos right now. And I was not an Usos guy forever. I didn't care anything about the face paint, board shorts, kid-friendly Usos. I didn't care about that at all. But this new version, of this current version of the Usos that they've been, the Uso Penitentiary, perfect. And their promo on SmackDown was great to the point where, like, it takes a lot. The New Day uh, growing as much as they did, they grew to the point where other members of the roster didn't even belong in the ring with them. You know what I mean? Like, like Gallows and Anderson didn't hang with them on a verbal level. They went toe-to-toe with The Rock, and it worked. It didn't feel like The Rock was there talking to kids. It felt like The Rock was there talking to peers and people who could give him competition for that title of best person on the microphone. Now, I think the Usos could do the same thing with The Rock because they did it with The New Day on SmackDown. They sat there with The New Day in the ring, and they commanded the attention for themselves. The New Day 
was piping in as the Usos were insulting all the teams that were coming out. But they didn't take the thunder. And I've never seen the New Day not take the thunder. Not as a negative, just because the New Day draw your attention that much. But the Usos did it. The Usos got it done. It was the Usos show. To the point where the New Day were like, maybe we're just not that needed here right now. And I think that's where the tag team division is going on SmackDown. That the New Day, there's no reason for the New Day to be anywhere except the top of a tag team division. And right now, there's no reason for the Usos to be anywhere except the top of a tag team division. Those paths will cross again. But I took that the segment on SmackDown this week of the New Day and the Usos becoming, showing mutual respect, you know, doing the handshake. I took that to mean that that story is over, which means that to me, the New Day don't belong on the tag team scene. There either needs to be another faction, another three-person group for the New Day to compete with, or the New Day needs to start splintering off and uh, the, the members of the New Day need to start some singles feuds. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if the New Day started knocking on Jinder Mahal's door. I don't know who the New Day member would be, but if we if we had Jinder Mahal and the Singh brothers against the New Day, it wouldn't shock me. That's probably what I would do. Honestly, we'll talk about SmackDown and, and Baron Corbin and AJ and all of that, but I bring up the Usos and the New Day because they had an unbelievable Hell in a Cell match at the pay-per-view over the weekend. Unbelievable. Believable. I didn't know at first. At the beginning of the match, they start taking out all the all the gimmicks, all the weapons that were painted in the different colors and everything, and all the all the fun stuff. And I didn't know. I didn't know if if it was gonna work. I was like, is this just gonna be like a kind of a sideshow weapons festival? And then the Usos started doing those dives, the suicide dives in the Hell in a Cell, where it looked like they were killing themselves and whoever they were hitting. And then Big E started doing what Big E does, and Kofi started, and it was just unbelievable. I mean, those guys came shot out of a cannon. You talk about an amazing way to start a a pay-per-view. It's no wonder that, to me, the pay-per-view didn't really catch up with that match until the final match. That pay-per-view was bookended. Bookended. Everything in the middle was okay. But we started there. After I watched it, I was like, that was... That was in 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 the list of top best Hell in a Cell matches. And I'm not saying it's the best of all time. Because I don't know if anything will ever hold a candle to Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker in the first Hell in a Cell match. You've got Undertaker and Triple H in the WrestleMania Hell in a Cell match. You've got several. You've got a handful. You've got a handful of Hell in a Cell matches that are in the conversation for best Hell in a Cell match. There's a bunch of Hell in a Cell matches that were okay, non, or, or even non-memorable. But there's a handful that are some of the best of all time. And to me, both, both Hell in a Cell matches at the pay-per-view on Sunday were on that list. I was sure that when I predicted that the New Day and the Usos would steal the show, like a lot of you guys predicted, that I would be proven right when I watched that first match on Sunday night. I mean, man, oh man, man alive. And you know what they did that was great? They stayed in the cage. It's definitely not the first Hell in a Cell match that stayed in the cage, but I think it's the first Hell in a Cell match. 
I don't know if it's the first time. It's one of the few Hell in a Cell matches that stayed in the cage that was that good. They utilized being in that cage. And I'm not even talking about the weapons being used. I'm talking about utilizing the environment, telling the story of being in that penitentiary. And, and, and that's really remarkable because, in my opinion, it was never really established why the Usos and the New Day were fighting in a cell. Like, that wasn't really established to me. But the story that was told in the ring, the story that was told as the match went on, was a story about being stuck in that hell in a cell. And it was a story about why that match is talked about the way it's talked about, why it's talked about in terms of shortening careers, and how badly all four men wanted the championships. I thought it was really cool that Kofi Kingston was locked outside the Hell in a Cell, as, you know, by rules go, he should have been, but not, he was locked outside of the cell, and he was just there for moral support. You know, he didn't end up breaking the lock or getting in or doing any kind of tricks. It was just, as advertised, a straight-up Hell in a Cell match where the best team walked out with the championships. And I thought that was great. I loved the spot where uh, one of the Uso brothers gets pinned into the corner of the cell with, this, with the kendo sticks. I saw that one of them ended up falling right away, and, you know, that happens. But I thought that that was pretty genius. I thought that was one of those innovative things that was it's just cool to see. So I watched that match, and I'm going like, yeah, well, obviously this is the, this is the show stealer, right? And I have to tell you, after watching the pay-per-view start to finish live, after reflecting on it to myself, and I waited until the next day before I really decided to myself the answer to this question. But I said, self, tell me now. Tell me now. What was the best Hell in a Cell match of the two? And honestly, I think Shane McMahon and Kevin Owens squeaked it out. Now, I think everything I've read from people is that they loved the Usos New Day match. And 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 God bless you. Good on you. I think you should. And I, I, I have no problem with the fact that that match is looked at as, as an amazing match and there's no argument about it and there shouldn't be an argument about it. But for me and for the reasons why I watch WWE, I thought the, the, the Shane McMahon-Kevin Owens match was better and here's why. Because I know a lot of people did not like that match. A lot of people didn't like it. A lot of people thought it was a stunt show. A lot of people thought, you know, Shane was back to his old tricks of, of really not being as credible as some people in the sense that he should not be looked at as a serious contender in a match against somebody like Kevin Owens. Uh, and that there were it was a whole bunch of risks that didn't need to be taken and probably couldn't be taken by somebody who wasn't Shane McMahon. And maybe that's true. But to me, I didn't see it as a stunt show. I saw it as a Hell in a Cell match. I saw it as what you would expect from a Hell in a Cell match. Um, I, you know, and I, and I don't think it's fair necessarily to call it, you know, a stunt show because I think that's what those matches are supposed to be. I think that the match between Kevin Owens and Shane McMahon was what it was supposed to be. But the reason why I call it one of my favorite Cell matches that has happened and my favorite of the night personally, and it squeaked by, by the way, it squeaked by New Day and the Usos. But the reason for me that it sneaked by was the story. The story. And you guys know that that, to me, is the number one 
in this world of wrestling has, has always been the story. And I thought that Shane McMahon made a believer out of me, that he could take on Kevin Owens. And I believed his offense as he was doing it in the match. What really sealed the deal for me was the fact that as we're watching this match, as they're going up onto the roof, as they're climbing, as they're outside the ring, I already, when they announced that this was a false count anywhere Hell in a Cell match, I made a stink face. I was like, you got, really? False count anywhere Hell in a Cell? What's the point of doing a Hell in a Cell if it's false count anywhere? You know? Why even, I don't even know why you locked the cell if it's false count anywhere, but regardless, they had to use the wire cutters to cut them and the whole deal. It ended up perfect. It ended up that you needed that stipulation, and I think we all knew, right? We all knew that the reason that it was false count anywhere was so once somebody fell off the cage, they could pin them without having to drag them back in the cage, and I understand that. That's fine. You could have done, not done a hell in a, a false count anywhere match and just had Shane lose via uh, knockout. You could have done a, a KO for KO. KO, KOs Shane McMahon. I would have just had the referee call the match and say, no, Shane's out. Shane's done. He can't compete anymore. And that's how Kevin Owens wins the match. I would have done that instead of adding in the uh, Falls Count Anywhere stip because Falls Count Anywhere kind of tips your hand or tips your hat, shows your hand to what you're going to do in this match. And as much as we all knew it, you don't want it spelled out, right? But regardless... So they do this, and even though it was spelled out, even though we knew to some degree how it was going to end, Shane and Kevin Owens, on top of that cell, were so, it was so scary watching that. I was watching with bated breath. I really was. I didn't know what was going to happen in that match. And to have a Hell in a Cell match with Shane McMahon, where you know what's going to happen, to not know what's going to happen is amazing. It's so difficult to do. That's the one thing that I didn't expect from this match, to be in a scenario where I didn't know what was going to happen. And that's the exact scenario I was in. I mean, so great. So great. When they're up on top of that cage and and they're trying to avoid moves, they weren't avoiding moves like in a wrestling match, like trying to pull reversals and, and leapfrogs and crawling under and doing all that stuff. They weren't doing that. Instead, they were displaying themselves as not wanting to take these moves on top of the cage. I'm not doing that. No way. You're not doing that to me. No, not going to happen. That's how it felt watching them. It felt like at any moment they could fall off the top of the cage. They could fall through the cage. They didn't want to be there. They didn't like all this stuff. It felt like real life. It felt like how somebody would legit act if they were on top of that. You know, for a second, when Kevin Owens is acting like he's going to, you know, take a running leap off that cage. You thought he was, and then you thought he might have really chickened out, and then Shane McMahon crawls up. For you to not know what's going on, for you to not know what's going to happen in that match, then to turn around and have the build be what it was. So I already, I don't know what's going to happen, and now it's just heightening and heightening and heightening, and I'm excited, and I, and oh my God, what could possibly happen? And then at the end of the match to feel paid off? That's something. That's spectacular. I honestly thought as I'm watching, when they start climbing down, and Shane kind of knocks Kevin Owens 
off the cage through the table, halfway up the cage. I was like, okay, so that was the big spot. They didn't want to repeat the Undertaker thing. Okay, no problem. I thought that that was it. When Shane then drags him to the other table, climbs back up to the top, oh, I was like, you got me. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And then the Sami Zayn turn, after all that, to have Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens on the same team, oh, my God. And I know that there are those that say they saw it coming, but just because it was hinted at does not mean you truly saw it coming. I didn't really see a lot of people thinking that Sami Zayn was legit going to turn on Kevin Owens. I think that a lot of people saw the promo on SmackDown the, uh, before Hell in a Cell and thought the Sami Zayn-Shane McMahon thing was just a weird thing. You know, that it was just a weird thing. Not that it was some, not that it was actual seeds being planted, but that's exactly what it was. Which, when you realize there's really detail being put into this stuff, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel like people really, really care. And that's what you want out of this, right? You want to feel like, oh, this is really, this is legit. This is happening. And it did, man. I think that the the, the Shane McMahon, I'm sorry, the, the Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens story is so important because for the first time in my memory, and if I'm wrong, you can tweet me, but for the first time in my memory, you talk about story arcs. You talk about storylines in the world of wrestling. The last interview that Shawn Michaels did on the podcast, we talked uh, at length about him returning to WWE. And one of the reasons he said he wasn't returning was because of the end of the story that the Shawn Michaels Heartbreak Kid character had in WWE. And as he explained his character in kind of artsy-fartsy terms, for the first time, I realized that in Shawn's head, he sees the guy who debuted... The guy who wrestled on WWF Superstars and WWF Wrestling Challenge with Marty Jannetty. The guy who kicked Marty Jannetty in the face. The guy who was a rocker. That character is the same character as the guy who was retired by The Undertaker. That character spans from teaming with Marty Jannetty and the Rockers all the way across. It's all one guy. Right, it's all one character, and as much as you know, a ton of stuff happens throughout. The story arc is that. The story arc is the story of that guy, which is so cool to think about, and it and it made me think differently about these stories that these wrestlers tell, that these superstars tell. Because Kane, for instance, the story of Kane starts with the character Kane. It does not involve fake Diesel. It does not involve Isaac Yankum. It starts with fake it, it starts with Kane right story of Brock Lesnar though starts with the debut of Brock Lesnar but he was Brock Lesnar for the first time in my that I can think of Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens the story that we saw unfolding at Hell in a Cell and being explained on Smackdown that is a piece of a story that started way before either one of those guys was in WWE. We see stories get played out on the indies. And once the contract is signed for WWE, that's the end of the story. You know, that's the end of Punk versus Joe. That's the end of uh, Brian Danielson. That's all these guys. That's the end. That's the end of Generico. El Generico gets signed to WWE. That's the end of him. 
Kevin Steen follows him up there, but still, like that, and he's going to go and become something else. For the first time, the the Kevin Owens Sami Zayn story actually does start when they first started. The story that we saw between El Generico and Kevin Owens play itself out in Ring of Honor and in Pro Wrestling Guerrilla. That story that ended with those wars in Ring of Honor, that ended with that match at final battle for Ring of Honor between Sami Zayn and El Generico. That story, that story continued on to when Kevin Owens showed up in NXT and on his first night spoiled Sami Zayn's NXT championship win. That story that started in the indies, that moved to Ring of Honor, continued into NXT. Kevin Owens powerbombing Sami Zayn was Kevin Steen giving El Generico a receipt. And that story went throughout NXT. And Sami Zayn gets injured. And Kevin Owens ends up becoming a bigger star than I think anybody realized that he would, except for a lot of us fans. And Kevin Owens goes to the main roster. And Sami Zayn is there to follow. And that rivalry continues. That rivalry doesn't stop. The rivalry that started in the Indies, that went to Ring of Honor, that went to NXT, that now goes to the main roster, is still going on on the main roster. They both get uh, they both get drafted to SmackDown because it was going on on Raw. They both get drafted to SmackDown. And with Kevin Owens being saved by Sami Zayn because Sami con- con- considers him his brother, when we go back and when we look at that story and the way it's told, we look at Ring of Honor and we look at Pro Wrestling Guerrilla and we look at these two kids traveling the world. This story started before WWE and WWE is continuing it for us. This narrative that we watched on the indies as Smart Mark fans, the stories that I watch played out in a Ring of Honor ring at the Hammerstein Ballroom is continuing. That is the same story. The story is continuing and it doesn't happen. Those stories that start outside of WWE, they don't continue into WWE. Even when like the NWO, when when the WWE was injected with a lethal dose of poison and the NWO shows up in WWE, that was not a continuation of the WCW storyline. That was a WCW property showing up in WWE. That was not a continuation of the storyline. You know, because there was no continuity of the story. So that, 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 that wasn't it. That wasn't what we're talking about, you know? When Goldberg showed up in WWE, yeah, it was the Goldberg character, but it wasn't a continuation of a story that started elsewhere. This is a continuation of a story. This, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn, is a story about wrestling. It's not a WWE story anymore. As much as it is, it isn't. WWE is allowing itself to be a chapter in this much, much bigger story. And if they can get the rights to the footage from Ring of Honor and from Pro Wrestling Guerrilla and from all these other spots, the DVD that they're going to put out, the documentary that they'll be able to put out one day, and it shouldn't be for years, of Sami Zayn versus Kevin Owens, 
Sami Zayn with Kevin Owens. We are watching the continuation of one of the longest running stories in the history of wrestling. This is not like when WCW hired Ultimate Warrior and Roddy Piper and tried to relive those glory days. That's not what this is. When Roddy Piper showed up in WCW, when Ultimate Warrior showed up in WCW to take on Hulk Hogan, that was not a continuation of a rivalry that existed in WWE and now we're going to keep fighting. That was, oh, that match was in WWE. We should do it in WCW. Even when Macho Man was in WCW, it was not a continuation of that story. There was no continuity. WWE is not looking at matches that happened in Ring of Honor between Kevin Steen and Al Generico and saying, okay, let's redo those matches here. The story's continuing. Generico, Steen, Owens, Zayn, that story is continuing. We're now in chapter whatever, and the backdrop is WWE. That's never happened before. If it has, strike me down. And by strike me down, I mean tweet me and tell me when it happened. Because I would love to have that discussion of when has a story been so big that WWE is simply the backdrop for a part of it. I mean, that's an amazing thing to witness as a wrestling fan. That's the perspective that I look at this in. And so I, I'm so excited that, that Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens are, are on the same team and there was that Sami Zayn turn. Not just because it's great for Sami Zayn to actually have something like this that he can sink his teeth into, but because it's a story unlike anything else that's been told in, in wrestling, quite frankly. Really, it's amazing. Give it some thought. Think about it with me. As far as the rest of the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view goes, um, you know, uh, Bobby Roode and Dolph Ziggler it was what it was. It, it worked for, for, for what it worked for. You know, both guys are great, and it, it was what it was. Um, the other title matches, the women's title match, you know, you want to see Charlotte get her just deserves, but that was the one match, I think. That and the Kevin Owens match. And I didn't even predict the right way Kevin Owens was going to win. But I think that Natty walking out with the championship was the only thing that I predicted correctly on the whole pay-per-view. Um, I, I, so, so I don't mind Natty keeping the title. I think Charlotte's just going to get it maybe at Survivor Series or down the road. Um, so that's not a big deal to me. Uh, I was confused about the AJ Styles thing. Again, don't even bother listening to State of Wrestling last week because I planned out SmackDown from last week until WrestleMania, and now everything's changed. But, but, if you look at it, um, once they said Ty Dillinger was involved in the triple threat match for the U.S. title at Hell in a Cell, I said to myself, I, you know, I think I know why. That's, that's so that the title can be put on Baron Corbin without Baron Corbin having to beat AJ Styles. Baron Corbin gets the title, even though he's got nuclear heat. Oh, everybody hates Baron Corbin, but I guess I'll give him the title. Um, so I, 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 in my mind, I was like, okay, so they want to give Baron Corbin the U.S. title, which I'm good with. I'm a big Baron Corbin fan, um, but they don't want to have him beat AJ Styles. They don't want AJ Styles to be pinned right now. Okay, totally get it. I'm perplexed as to why AJ Styles lost to Baron Corbin on SmackDown clean. Um, you know, long-term, I don't think it hurts AJ Styles just because he's so good that people can look past it. But, you know, I, I, I do wonder 
why you bothered going to all the trouble of putting AJ in a scenario where he didn't have to get beat for the title at the pay-per-view only to have him get beat in trying to get the title back at SmackDown. Uh, maybe it's because they feel like what's next for AJ Styles can be bigger than the U.S. title, and eventually Baron Corbin can come knocking on his door and saying, hey, I can beat you because I beat you before. I don't know. But I thought that that was very... Uh, the, the, the strangest part of the whole thing was AJ Styles losing clean on SmackDown because, you know, just... If he's going to lose clean, have him lose clean for the title, I guess. But I don't know. I don't make those decisions. And uh, I, But I would love to talk to somebody about that. And just, just, just to pick somebody's brain. I want to know the psychology as to why AJ would lose clean on SmackDown. Um, the WWE Championship match is a match that a lot of people are talking about. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. I was disappointed. I, I talked about it on the podcast. I think that Hell in a Cell was the moment to make Nakamura the champion of the world. Um, I think people would not have expected it. And I think Nakamura can be WWE champion. I, I, I don't think we've seen from Nakamura what he has to offer to the WWE. And I don't know if that's Nakamura's fault. I don't know if that's WWE's fault. We don't know who to blame from watching at home. But I do know that the, the Nakamura from New Japan, the King of Strong Style, I haven't seen him on the main roster except for flashes in the John Cena match and at the Money in the Bank when he stared down AJ Styles. The commentators at Hell in a Cell, they said, oh, Nakamura actually turned down a deal with UFC, which I believe is true. I've, I've read that before. The problem is I haven't seen anything in the ring that would tell me that this guy can beat an MMA fighter. You know, I haven't seen that. I've seen the shirts that say King of Strong Style. I haven't seen anything that's Strong Style in the ring. I haven't seen the stuff that makes Nakamura Nakamura. I think that his promo should be short and concise and rare. Every now and then he should just say something quick and be done. And I think that like, you know, if you're going to do all the crazy rock star stuff, which I think is necessary, what made Michael Jackson, I mean, what made Nakamura so appealing to me in New Japan was that he did all this Michael Jackson stuff. But then once he was in the ring, he was so badass that like, you would have to be afraid of him. He would do all this artsy stuff walking to the ring, but then once he got in the ring, he was a force to be reckoned with. I think that's the Nakamura that we need to see. And we haven't seen that guy who can strike fear into the hearts of men in WWE. And I think we need to. I think for all of our sake, for Nakamura's sake, for the investment in Nakamura, and I just think that he could add a ton to SmackDown. You know, however you get there, is how you get there, but I just, I just think, and, and the Rusev versus Randy Orton match, I felt like it was almost great, you know, I, I thought that Rusev's counter to the RKO was really cool when he grabbed his arms and put him in the thing, but then when Randy slipped out and gave him the RKO, it's like, oh, okay, I see where this is going, um, so yeah, you know, you wonder what Randy Orton's future is, unless he's just like, we just want a strong good guy on the show, which is okay, but, you know, he's already unsuccessfully attempted the w to get the WWE Championship, so I'm not entirely sure. You know, at this point, it might be interesting, and it would be tough because you have so many bad guys on the show already. It could be interesting to try to turn Nakamura into a bad guy, to have him turn on Randy Orton. I think it could be interesting. You know, what do you got to lose? Except for the fact that you don't have any good guys on the show anymore because Sami Zayn just turned. Um, but I do, th I do think that something needs to be done with Nakamura. Something needs to be done to... Uh, to freshen up 
what Nakamura has going on. Speaking of cages, how about the fact that uh, War Games is coming back to, to NXT now, huh? This dropped, this news dropped right as I was dropping my podcast last week, but War Games, the match beyond, is coming to NXT TakeOver. I'm really interested to see it. Instead of doing the uh, traditional 4-on-4, four 5-on-5, four, five five, whatever they did, it's 3-on-3-on-3, uh, three on three on three, which is still, I'm cool with it. You get a bunch of guys in there, and, and I don't know the rules for sure if they're going to stick to the traditional rules where the match doesn't really start until all competitors are in the ring, and then it doesn't end until one person from each team would have to submit. I don't know. I don't know if, if like, because that's the way they used to do it, that if one person on a team submitted, the whole team lost. So it's more pressure to not tap out. So I hope that they do that again. I mean, if you're going to do it, you might as well stick to the original rules. But I'm very, very excited. I think it's going to it's gonna create a lot of buzz for this NXT show. Uh, I think it's going to get people excited about the NXT product. Uh, I'm interested to see how they shoot the thing. Because we talked to Eric Bischoff about it, and just having a big ring not being used there on the floor is going to be something to deal with on the show. So uh, I'm interested to see it, but I'm very, very, very excited uh, at the return of uh, of War Games. Um, and the opposite of returns is going away, uh, and we'll talk about Neville. I mean, I don't know what it is about the Cruiserweight division because I was shocked, shocked, when Austin Aries left WWE. Because to me, like, I understand the Cruiserweight division isn't the most prestigious thing in the world, and it's got a bad rep uh, amongst some fans, but from the very beginning, I think that the, the Cruiserweight division had a pretty tremendous spotlight put on it and continues to have a pretty tremendous spotlight put on it. And Austin Aries had been doing some of his best work. He'd finally gotten over after being a commentator and really... And doing those interviews, he he won me over. Like he he was finally at a place where people really cared. And I don't know if it was just not winning the championship. I don't know what it was. But Austin Aries ends up leaving, and then rumor has it that Neville walked off Monday Night Raw uh, on Monday night. That he was supposed to lose in a match against Enzo on Raw, the match that Kalisto ended up winning, and either. Before they changed it or after they changed it, Neville ended up leaving. Who knows? I don't know if there's too much art mixing with reality in the sense that Neville legit doesn't want Enzo to be a top guy. Because, you know, who knows at this point how much of the nuclear heat is actually real. Who knows? But I do think that that, that you, you've got a situation like that that like, Neville was committing 100% to his character. And he was doing great. Like, you had to watch him. He was as popular, I think, as he's been on the main roster. And and to see him walk away is peculiar, to say the least. You know, he had a really long run with the championship. I, and you wonder, like, was something different promised to him? Was it working with Enzo? Is the whole thing fake? Is it not real? You know, I don't know. It's certainly interesting that stuff like this has really uh, gotten a lot of interest going in the Cruiserweight division, but I really hope that Neville's not gone. And sometimes I think that guys end up being too close to what they're doing for their own good, meaning that maybe Neville could not see 
how well he was doing or how well he was being received. You know, I do, I remember, you know, his t-shirt came out a couple weeks ago and it was very, very basic and he tweeted about it being lame or something, you know, I'm paraphrasing. So maybe, I don't know, It's it, performers are a weird breed, man. And that's what sports entertainers are at the end of the day. They're performers. So, you know, maybe he's in this scenario where he doesn't realize that he's actually doing quite well. That the cruiserweights are getting quite a spotlight put on them. And as much as WWE cruiserweight has a bit of a stigma attached to it, Neville was the shining light in that division. Neville was the breakout star. Enzo being added to the group only adds more attention to the cruiserweights. And Neville and Enzo are by far, even with Kalisto on the show, Neville and Enzo were still the two biggest stars on the show. So it's odd to me. It's odd. You got guaranteed time on this 205 Live show. You got guaranteed time on Raw. You got promo time. You got match time. Maybe he wants to do more flips. I don't know. But I sometimes, like, I find myself wanting to help these guys. Like, I, I find myself wanting to go to these guys and go, like, hey, dude, everything's good, man. Everything's good. You're in a good spot. You know? You got all this exposure on you. You're becoming a bigger and bigger star every week. You're still you're still at the good spot. Maybe they wanted him to put on a dress and be Sister Abigail. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows exactly what's going on? Um, but I was really shocked, and I really hope that Neville is not gone from WWE because I think I think he was doing great. And even in the confrontations with Enzo, I think he was fantastic. Uh, and I, I hope I hope that he gets that. I hope that he gets that. He was really, I thought the product that he was putting out was really good, and I'd like to see him continue to do that. I'm really interested to see what kind of product Bray Wyatt puts out with this Sister Abigail thing. Now, I got some flack on Twitter for saying that I was optimistic about Sister Abigail. I don't know that I'm fully optimistic. Like, the odds of this working are less than the odds of it not working, but... You know, I could see a vision, where, a version where this works. And I could see, and Bray Wyatt is the guy to do it. You know, to go full on Norman Bates. I, Bray Wyatt could do it. It's not impossible. And it's not like Bray Wyatt's doing anything spectacular at the moment anyway. At least it's something new. Honestly, when I saw it, I, I, I would really like for Bray Wyatt to end up wrestling Brock Lesnar at Survivor Series. And I get on these Bray Wyatt kicks. You guys know by now. You guys that have been listening to the podcast understand. I get on these Bray Wyatt kicks where I just can't leave well enough alone. I just can't sit there and say, it's not going to happen. Bray Wyatt is not happening. I, can't, I, I, I go like, well, I look at Sister Abigail and I go, honestly, if it's me in charge, I love Finn Balor. I'm going to, first of all, the Sister Abigail thing seems like it's something weird enough that I would actually pitch. Like, I would, I would be like, what if we just uh, make Bray Wyatt gender fluid and we put him in a dress and eyeshadow and we have him wrestle? It seems very 2017 to me. If it were me, I'd, I would commit 100%. I would have Sister Abigail beat Finn Balor. And then being fueled by Sister Abigail, I would have Bray Wyatt shift back into Bray Wyatt mode. And then I would have Bray Wyatt go to Survivor Series to face Brock Lesnar for the championship. It would be a match that Brock Lesnar would obviously win, but 
you know, it'd be cool to see the buildup because Bray Wyatt would actually be in a good spot for a couple of weeks. Um, it wouldn't hurt Bray Wyatt anyway to lose to Brock Lesnar. He's, you know, he's lost to everybody else. Like, why not have him lose to Brock Lesnar? And for a second, it would just be a fun story. Now, I do think that the Sister Abigail match can only happen with Finn Balor because if he comes to the ring to fight Brock Lesnar dressed as Sister Abigail, uh, he's going to look like a guy who showed up to a Halloween party on November 2nd. You know what I mean? Why does that guy think it's a costume party? <laughs> it's not good. Um, you know, I think he can do it with Finn Balor because the character's new, because Finn Balor's got the demon, because it's part of this whole, like, man versus demon versus God versus whatever story. But I think it. I if I'm doing it at TLC, I have Bray Wyatt as Sister Abigail beat Finn Balor. Finn Balor goes off, he collects his bearings, he'll be just fine. And then have Bray Wyatt, now with the power of Sister Abigail once again, challenge Brock Lesnar. And Brock Lesnar accepts, and that's your Survivor Series match. Because at Survivor Series, you can easily do a 4-on-4, 5-on-5, Raw versus SmackDown match that could involve, like, The Shield, Braun Strowman, and The Miz. Or The Shield, Braun Strowman, and Finn Balor versus, you know, The New Day, AJ Styles, and Shinsuke Nakamura. Like, that would be an amazing SmackDown versus Raw match. So you got that big match. You got Brock Lesnar versus Bray Wyatt now being fueled by uh, Sister Abigail. There's stuff there to me. And maybe that just makes sense to me, but I think that that, 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 that could be cool. Like, Brock Lesnar, uh, uh, Bray Wyatt commits to this Sister Abigail thing, right? I think we only got... And we only got one more episode of Raw before TLC. So next week on Raw, Sister Abigail's got to come out and challenge Finn Balor. Sister Abigail versus Finn Balor. Bray Wyatt does the whole thing in a dress and everything. And that's your moment. Like, I'd say, why not? If you're Bray Wyatt, why not? You know? You've had all this other stuff thrown at you. Let's get weird. Let's go crazy. Let's get nuts. Let's wrestle Finn Balor in a dress. You know what I mean? And be like a super badass. Be be as violent as you've ever been while wearing a dress, an eyeshadow, and a veil. Why not? You know. And then have him win, clean. You know, after 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 a really after a beatdown from a man in a dress. Finn Balor licks his wounds. He'll be fine. And then and then Bray Wyatt reemerges, new and powerful. You got from now until the end of November. To make Bray Wyatt seem super tough, which you can do. Scary, which you can do. Have him beat some people. And then have him lose to Brock Lesnar at Survivor Series. Who you hurting? Who you hurting? That's what I would do. And I'd have the Bludgeon Brothers get on TV real soon. I don't know. I don't know about that name. I'm just happy to see Luke Harper and Eric Rowan back on TV. Uh, all right. Don't forget. Don't forget, y'all, that uh, uh, October 24th, it's the three-year anniversary show. Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast featuring one of my favorite guests, Bubba Ray Dudley. Bully Ray is what he's now known as uh, over in Ring of Honor, and uh, he'll be my guest. He'll be there. Uh, I'll interview him. He'll break down what's going on in the world of wrestling. He'll be part of the meet and greet if you get VIP tickets. There'll be a Q&A, whole bunch of stuff going on. Plus, I'll have contests there. You'll be able to win signed copies by Ric Flair and Charlotte Flair of the book Second Nature. There'll be other surprises. It's going to be a great show Tuesday, October 24th. 
at the Highline Ballroom, and we'll see you next week here on Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And subscribe for free to listen every week to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.